Hello everyone, welcome to Langstaff Assembly Podcast. My name is Yanaili Joyce and I'm your host for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you and that it draws you near to God. Good morning. Good to be with you all today. I'd like to read from Acts chapter 20. is Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. He considered it pretty important. He, he didn't go into town, as we'll read, but he felt it important to stop by and leave this with them. You know, uh, you know sometimes we make a big deal about you know, these last words in the Bible, you know, 2 Timothy, Paul's last words, and we'd like to make a, you know, a, a bit more, see some extra significance in things because it's the parting words. And, Perhaps that's true. Maybe we'll do that here too. But, you know, when you, the stuff that's recorded in the book of the Acts, the fact that it is, there must have been some significance to it. I mean, in Paul's third missionary journey, that went on for, you know, three, four, five years, he spent three years in Ephesus already. And we don't know anything he said there. But in his whole third missionary journey, this is all we have recorded for us of an actual message, an address that he gave. And I was actually just looking this morning at the other ones. We actually only, I I think I'm correct in saying this, we actually only have one message per missionary journey recorded in the New Testament. So for the first missionary journey, Antioch of Pisidia, Acts 13, It's a message to the Jews in the synagogue. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Second missionary journey, he's in Athens on Mars Hill. And he preaches a message to these people who are believing in an unknown God. And he presents Christ. So the Jew to the Gentiles. And in his third missionary journey, who's the message directed to? To the elders of a church in Ephesus. I think there's a a progression there, right, that we can see, and I think there's some significance to that. But let's just read this through here and um, see what kind of lessons we can learn from Paul's message to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both the Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold... I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which is he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So I have three, po three points. Paul's integrity, Paul's message, Paul's warning. So we'll begin with Paul's integrity here. It is clear in his message here, the parting words that he has for them is actually, he's not telling them anything new. He's telling them that what they knew of him for those three years he was there, that they knew exactly all there was to know about him. That he had lived an open life before them there in Ephesus. They knew his manner of life intimately. Paul didn't have any skeletons in his closet. Would you mind anyone knowing what you do every day? Paul didn't mind anybody asking him any questions. Now, living in the living in truth, living an open life means that you're unafraid of anybody asking you any pointed questions, wondering what you're up to, or any of those things. You know, it's only the people that have things to hide that are afraid. Paul wasn't. You know, the reality is, is God knows what we're doing every day anyway. And when we, or if, we are living a life that, you know, has some hidden compartments in it, all we're really bearing witness to is this. We don't believe in God. Well, oh, yeah, no, I believe in God. I mean, he's the creator. I mean, you look at all the, you know, look at the intricacies of creation. I just love the story of redemption. Of course I believe in God. But if you're living a life with skeletons in your closet, no, you don't. You're living a functional atheism. Because if God exists, he knows exactly what's going on in your life. And if you believe in him, you change your life. But we see here in Paul's manner of life, his integrity. What he did in public was the same as what was going on in house to house. He didn't have a public message and a private message. No, he didn't preach to the crowd. 
you know, get the pat on the back and then just modify things for his friends. But what made Paul then so impactful? And this is my little application from the passage here is, is that in this, you know, in, in Paul's ministry, he was his person, who he was, was on display. And what do I mean by his personhood? Well, you know that to be a person, the thing that makes a person a person is three things, right? There's, there's a mind. This is what makes us different than animals, right? This is what makes us connected to God. Because <laughs> God is a person. Is There's a mind, intelligence, and there's a will, freedom, choice, and there's emotion, right? A heart. And as you read through this passage here, you see Paul's heart. It's full. You see his spine, his will, his determination, his desires. And you see his mind. It's full. It's intelligent. He's declaring to them the knowledge of God. He's not holding anything back. He's declaring to them the full counsel of God. Unfortunately, the thing that we need to be watchful of in our own lives is, is that we can be heartless. We can be spineless. When the going gets tough, when we need the courage, we heard this morning about the Lord Jesus, they're the, the meek and lowly one, but uh, he was going to bring justice to the nations. And I was thinking this morning, uh, about it, it's the lamb that opens the seals, isn't it? That brings about justice. And if there had been time this morning, I might have even come up beforehand and I've been wondering myself lately, probably for the past year or so, if in Exodus 12, who is the destroyer? God says, the Lord says that when the, I see the blood, I will pass over you. It would seem to me that it's God, the Father, who shelters the household because the blood is on the door but it also tells us that it's the lord in both cases jehovah who goes through egypt and smites the firstborn so if it's the lord god the father who is the one smiting the firstborn why is there any need for him to pass over hover over protect the blood-covered houses. Maybe the destroyer is just an angel. Maybe. But you know that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament did some pretty amazing things. For example, killed 185,000 men in one night. And I would argue that the angel of the Lord is pre-incarnate Jesus. I wonder if... In that Exodus 12 story, right? The lamb is slain. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus. The blood is on the door. 
The father is satisfied. He's protecting. And it's Jesus who enacts judgment on those who spurn the blood. I think that's the Bible illustration. I think that's the biblical teaching throughout the rest of the Bible is that judgment is committed to the son. And so we see, kind of got off on a tangent there, didn't I? But here we have heartless, mindless people. Or at least there's that concern that we could be these kind of people. So what do we have here? Paul, emotion, humility and tears, night and day, his love for the flock, his will. He doesn't shrink. He's innocent of the blood of all men. He's determined to be self-supported. He doesn't want to be biased. He's not able to be bribed. In his education, he teaches the whole counsel of God. Paul's impact was great because of these things. What are we trying to do when we interact with each other? So when a man gets up here on a Sunday morning to share something, or to lead the congregation in worship, what makes it impactful? We all recognize God already knows our thoughts, right? So why do we do this? Obviously, it's for our benefit, right? We're sharing for each other. We're leading everybody in worship. What makes it impactful? What makes our ministry impactful? What makes our communication impactful afterwards in fellowship, when we're with one another, when we're at each other's homes? It's when we communicate on this personal level. When we engage one another's minds. So sometimes a person will get up, just to use the example of a Sunday morning, somebody gets up and they give us a nugget that we've never thought of before. It's engaged our mind. It says, I've never thought of that before. And that opens your eyes to some new aspect of the Lord Jesus or of God that causes you to worship. That's why we do this, because we're here to guide each other into worship. Sometimes a person gets up and says the simplest thing. Something you've known your entire life. Jesus loves me. And that just catches you right here. In your heart. And they've connected with you. And they've led you in worship. Another time somebody gets up here and says something. And it gives you spine. It increases your determination to live for God. To stand for him. To bear witness to him. And our interactions then with each other should be like Paul's here. Should be heart growing, spine growing, spine supporting, mind blowing. <laughs> right? So, what were Paul's credentials? As a result of this, this integrity. This life that was for others, it meant then that he, he says it. He didn't consider his life precious to himself. 
right? He'd, he'd lost his selfishness. He'd realized the words of the Lord Jesus, that if you lose your life, you'll save it. So that led, as it says here in his, in his address to the people, that he had faith in the face of promised trial and suffering. Because I know, I'm going to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's told me to. And everywhere I go along the way, the Holy Spirit keeps telling me through the words of different prophets, you're going to have a tough time there. Wasn't the devil telling him, don't go? Everybody's pulling him. Pull him back here, Paul. We want you in Ephesus still. Stay here longer. We need you. Paul's saying, no, the Spirit's told me to go. And the Spirit keeps telling me it's not going to be a fun time. I don't know exactly what's waiting there, but it's not going to be pretty. And what does he do? Keeps going. It meant that he had fearlessness in his gospel witness. He said to them, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. I wish I could say that kind of thing. So in that old watchman imagery of the Old Testament, right? I mean, you got the castle and the guy on the parapet there, and he's looking out his job all day, all night, whatever it was, for his allotted time is to watch for the enemy to come. Danger. Didn't fall asleep on the job. The danger was coming. He sounded the alarm. Right? As long as he sounded the alarm, whatever happened after that, he was innocent. But if he didn't sound the alarm, the blood of the city was on his, his shoulders. And wherever Paul went, sounded the alarm. Judgment's coming. Repent towards God. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus. This fearlessness before gospel, uh, in gospel witness means that as Paul, he was living his life before God as opposed to before man. He wasn't looking for man's approval. He was living for the eye of God. And but we need. Paul, as a result, lived a service-filled life. There was no hint of covetousness. He didn't want or need any money. He supported himself and he actually supported them. He taught them that it was more blessed to give than to receive. He didn't serve the Lord for any position or power or privilege. He served the Lord out of his love for the Lord Jesus. The opposite, of course, is true when I want to save my life. Unfortunately, these are the things that kind of beset us more commonly. But number one, it means it, it, instead of faith in the face of trial and suffering, it's avoidance of difficulty in life. Right? So we look for the easiest way through. The thing that mitigates the most damage, you know? But I don't know about you, but like Hebrews 11 doesn't have any of those kind of stories that were like, by faith, Paul, when warned of God that he would suffer many things in Jerusalem, boarded a ship to Tarshish. It doesn't say that anywhere. None of the people in Hebrews 11 got there by taking the easy way out. They got there by faith in spite of the difficulties and the trials. When I'm trying to save my life, rather than being fearless in my gospel witness, I'm ashamed of it. So the opportunities are lost and I'm guilty 
of not warning people of the coming danger. And finally, instead of a service-filled life, I have a self-absorbed life. And you become tools for me to manipulate. What I love about people in a self-absorbed life is that they, if I just pull the right levers, will actually serve me. And they will provide me with whatever I want. Paul wasn't like that. Paul was a man of integrity. He connected with people emotionally and the level of intelligence. He provided people with spine because that's who he was. That's the platform that we serve others from individually. I would argue just for the sake of application, the thought just passes my mind here. As husband and wife, if you don't have your relationship together, if things aren't okay there, don't bother trying to go beyond. Serve each other. Make that union one of integrity. Connect to one another on a personal level, emotionally, mind level, spine level. Become one. And it's from there then that you can serve others. That's the platform that gospel activity should move out from. So then Paul's message, second point. What did he preach? How would he boil it down? Well, in this passage there, he calls it a few different things. He preached repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus, verse 21. He talks about uh, his ministry. He talks about the gospel of the grace of God. He talks about proclaiming the kingdom. He describes how he just declared to them the whole counsel of God. Whole lots of different terms. I'd say they're equivalent. Suppose you were lost on an island. No Bible. But you're a Christian. How would your relationship with God develop and grow in that atmosphere? I would argue it's by those two phrases, a repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus. Like one of the, the cons, I think, of having a gospel meeting and then at a different time having a ministry meeting is that most of the time we would preach repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus at the gospel meeting and think that that's only for sinners. This is what Paul says is the nuts and bolts of his message. The gospel of the grace of God is what? Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the message of the kingdom? What did John the Baptist preach? Declaring the kingdom. Repent. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I got off on that tangent on Exodus 12. What was the blood for? It was for God. Why were they safe in the house? Because of faith in the blood. Or what the blood spoke of, faith in the Lord Jesus. So for salvation, yes, repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for believers, it's repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. So repentance towards God, what is that? Well, it's acknowledgement of our weakness, of our sin. A wayward heart that needs a change in direction. It's God that needs our repentance. What's faith in the Lord Jesus? This is looking at him and recognizing that the only currency God accepts for our, instead of our own ability to perform, is faith in him. The bottom line is this, the sweetest believers, the Christians you want to be with are the ones who have a living relationship with the Lord. You know that, that's not you know, rocket science. But how did they get that? Because they've cultivated in their lives a life of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. They've maintained a tender conscience with respect to sin, and before God, they're not functional atheists. Their conscience bothers them even when the slightest thing happens. And they tell the Lord, sorry, I need help. And they do that regularly. They have a quick confession of sins. They depend on the Lord Jesus. They don't self-justify their actions. It was because of this person, it was because of this circumstance. And, you know, I, I reacted this way because I, I've never been in that case before. They're willing to acknowledge they're wrong, even if it's only 10% of the whole situation. You've ever read C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia? Over and over and over in the books, this is a theme he picks up on. Worth reading the books just for that. The little kids, they go on their way, they do their things, they, they ignore him or they do their, and then somewhere in the book, there's always this face-to-face -face between Aslan the lion and the person who committed the wrong. And invariably, the person who's committed the wrong, they, they start off trying to, you know, pass the blame. And he just roars until they're honest Enough to admit they're wrong, to repent, and humble enough to put their faith in him to fix the problem. Honesty and humility. Every true confession involves those two things. You know, it cannot be one to the exclusion of the other. All repentance, remorse, wallowing in your sin, full of self-pity. I'm just the worst person ever. I'm broken. There's a bit of a cult. You know, you read in religious literature, evangelical literature, you know, maybe not so much now, but maybe five years ago anyway. This beauty of broken, beauty of being broken. Really? 
Do you see any beauty in broken? That's why Paul wrote to Ephesians 5, right? A, a glorious church, broken and stinky. Isn't that what Jesus did? No, there's no beauty in broken. That's just the start. You stay there, that's terrible. I might even argue that that's what Judas was. It says he repented, but no, we changed the word to remorse because we're just not sure, you know, because we, we don't, we know Judas went to hell. So could he have done? Judas's problem was he didn't put any faith in the Lord Jesus. What about the prodigal son in the, spig, in the pigsty? He's looking around. He realized, I have sinned. Their beauty in him staying in the pigsty? That didn't change anything. So if you've sinned, and you've got godly grief about it, good. But it needs to have be coupled with faith in the Lord Jesus. There must be this turning to Christ in faith. This is where the healing is. The growth, the change, the power. It's in the connection to the vine. It's by resting, looking, meditating, filling our minds with him as we move in the right direction. You know, 2 Corinthians 3 tells us it's by beholding him that we're changed into his image from glory to glory, even by the spirit of the Lord. And it's so powerful, our consideration of him, that in 1 John 3, John says that when we see him, we'll be like him. So we're looking through the glass darkly still, right? But anytime, any glimpse that we have changes us, but when we see him face to face immediately. That's the power of looking at him. The same time you can't have faith alone. This is the other side of the pendulum, right? You know, basically I'm not accountable for anything because you no know, Jesus paid for my sins at the cross and there's, you know, I'm all forgiven. And if I feel sorry about my life and for my sin, that's, that's, that's just bad thinking. God doesn't want us moaning and all the rest of this. No, that's just, just called grace abuse. The gospel of the grace of God that Paul preached, that he calls here, he said, it is repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't cover over sin. We expose it. We open it to God. We open it to whoever need, it needs to be open to. And we put our faith in the Lord Jesus to change the situation. Repentance and confession is so important. It's the only way that we can be freed actually from sin's hold on us. Now, there's a temptation that we have to cover it to be gracious. We think that's being gracious. You know, somebody comes to you and tells you, I did this or I did that. And we think, okay, don't worry about it. It's actually fig leaves. God didn't leave Adam and even their fig leaves. There's nothing worse than this. Living with unconfessed sin or sin that hasn't been made right stunts us as Christians. 
we can't grow. It actually makes us beholden to the person who's covered it over for us. That person knows something about me that I don't want anybody else to know. So whenever that person says, do this, I say, how high? And that person is actually holding me, enslaving me to the sin that already does. The only way, I mean, having that uncovered sin also alienates us from God. So the only way for me to move forward as a Christian is that there's sin in my life is to expose it, get it open, uncover it. It's when sin is uncovered, dealt with, that then love can cover over a multitude of sins. God's way, of course, is the most humbling, but it's also the most liberating. It deals with sin here, now, rather than then and there. If you read 1 Corinthians 5, for example, in the message... The way he phrases it is, his, he says, is that the goal of exposing sin, of dealing with sin now, is so that we're on our feet on Judgment Day. It's dealt with. It's in the past. We're not meeting it up there. God doesn't want to leave us in our fig leaves. The only people that are, are being fooled when we're dressing ourselves in fig leaves is ourselves. Now, it's interesting that it's repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, one of the things that uh, you'll notice if you kind of start to think about the Trinity as distinct persons, God as distinct persons, is this. I don't think you'll read ever in the Bible that you repent to Jesus. You repent to God. God is the one that needs sin taken care of. You put your faith in Jesus. No, big deal, whatever. That's why it worked at the cross. If Jesus is the one that needed to be satisfied on account of our sin, how could he die and be satisfied? But God is the one that requires justice. So the Lord Jesus was able to take our place. Satisfy God. As a result of that, that is why now Jesus is the one who is the one who enacts justice, who carries it out. Even in the garden. When sin occurred, the repentance was towards God. And then what did God do? Take off those fig leaves. Gave them a sacrifice. Speaking of Jesus, he says, clothe yourself in that sacrifice. God, the Father, in this case, couldn't make them better. Jesus could. And I just think that sometimes maybe we pray a little bit wrong. Not that you can. <laughs> And when you've sinned, confess your sin to God, the Father. And you ask Jesus to change you. 
Right? The epistles tell us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one you need. It's the Holy Spirit that gives you the access to them, that connects you. But when you sin, it's the Father that you need to repent to. It's the Lord Jesus that you need to put your faith in to change you, to make you better. Finally, Paul's warning. What was Paul's biggest concern? Of all the things he could tell them in Ephesus, been there for three years preaching before, and he's gone off, and he's on his way back, and he, he doesn't have time to even come into town. He, he sends a message ahead, and the elders come to the shoreline, and the sheep ship just kind of stops off on the side. And they're on the beach. Paul gives them this little message before he keeps on going. To tribulation, he doesn't know what, but he knows it's there in Jerusalem. What's he got to tell them? He says, okay, guys, you got to be strong. Just received a message from the Lord, Nero, it's going to be tough for us. You got to tell your congregation, pack up the beans, store them in the caves. Things are going to be tough for us. We're going to have to go underground. Is that what he's concerned about? No. He's not concerned about Roman persecution coming. Is he worried about doctrinal drift? Maybe this is it. He's concerned that the Ephesians are going to lose their cultural relevance. His biggest concern is he's telling them, you guys got to be careful. Wolves are coming. And they're not coming from out there. They're coming from in here. And they won't spare the flock. You know, in the Bible, you got either shepherds, right? You know, those are the good people looking after the sheep. You've got hirelings, the hired hands. You know, when trouble comes, they just run away. But they don't really do too much to the sheep. Then you got wolves. Wolves eat sheep, right? Paul's not saying that you're going to have some hirelings. You know, there's going to be, you know, when that Roman persecution comes, some of you are just going to disappear. going to move outside of Roman Empire. No, he's saying there's wolves. What are they going to do? They're going to twist the flock. They're going to, you know, they're going to draw people away, twist the scriptures. And he goes through, it gives a, a little description of different things that these people can do. Where's the danger here? No, I'll confess. I, I spent a good part of my Christian life Concerned about making sure that I knew what there was to know about the Bible in order to, uh, what I could learn from the Bible and reading books and stuff with respect to how could I counteract error. You know, with what, what, what's the argument of the world that I live in, the secular world here? Like, so how could I debunk atheism? And then I realized... Really, is, is, that's not really a concern in the New Testament, is it? What's the bigger concern? I mean, Second Peter chapter 2 is all about false teachers coming. And the Lord Jesus was here. All those Pharisees. 
What was he concerned about? Was he concerned about reforming the Pharisees' practices? Saying, okay, guys, you, you've taken the Sabbath a little bit too far. But, you know, the, you know you, the framework you've got there is pretty good. But, like, just hold up there on the Sabbath a little bit. If you just ratchet it back a bit into, you know, get a little bit more back in the box. Is that what he's concerned about? No. He's actually concerned about them. They are the problem. He's not trying to reform their practices. He's trying to expose the people. The people are the problem. So we need to recognize that the issue is bad people. That's what we need to watch out for. It's less looking out for bad teaching or bad practices. You know, a straying good person is actually of not too much concern because if they're good they're correctable you can have a little conversation with them and next thing you know oh okay yeah i didn't realize that thanks for pointing that out but a bad person who teaches everything right that's a problem Because we can't, we, we have a problem seeing it. We'll overlook the bad behavior because of the good teaching. And Paul's saying it's wolves. Paul says, take heed to yourselves. Pay attention. Keep your eyes open. Why? Because sheep, it's not in their job description to do that. Sheep just want to be able to graze without fear. And they can do that when their shepherds are trustworthy. And Paul says it's very important. He's saying the Holy Spirit's raised you up, you shepherds, you leaders, for this position, for this responsibility. And he's saying the flock, according to God, is extremely valuable. He's paid for it with the blood of his own. Other translation, he paid for it with his own blood. We just remembered that, right? Bloodshed. That was Jesus's own blood. This is an important thing. It's a responsible thing. Paul recognizes it's not everybody's going to do the right thing. So are we, what's his advice? He says, pay attention to yourselves, right? Verse 28. So there's a problem there. You know, or at least there's a potential issue there. We're not paying attention to ourselves. Again, that means we're accountable to one another. The Holy Spirit has raised you overseers. It's possible to have overseers who are not spirit appointed. Well, how does that work? Well, use your imagination. People who aren't doing the work who get kind of, you know, the shoulder tap, hey, come join us. Why? 
Well, because maybe they're already a little beholden to me because I've papered over some sin before in the past. I want to surround myself with some yes men, and that's how things happen, right? What are they doing? They're wanting to gain their own disciples by twisting the truth. They're not serving you. They're serving themselves. That's what's going to happen. Paul says it. Does it happen? We know it does. Well, what's Paul's conclusion? Does that, I got a dire warning for you, but you know what? You have everything you need to be a successful shepherd here. You've got my example. He says other places in the New Testament, be followers of me as I am of Christ. I mean, I don't know if there's any, I mean, I don't think any of us would say that kind of thing ourselves. But to have other people recognize that there's some Christ in you, that's kind of the goal, isn't it? means that this conforming to the image of his son is actually happening here in time. So they had his example. They had his message. As this message over and over, repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the tools. Know them well. This is your hammer and your chisel. And yet my warning Eyes open. I'm innocent of the blood of you now. What did Ephesus do? Well, Revelation 2 tells us a few things. It seemed they did well on a few fronts. Especially in this line of the Warning. You know, it tells us that uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, they hated that. They were able to judge certain things. They didn't let those kind of things in. They, they did well on, on right teaching and on knowledge. Mind and spine, I think they are very good at. Revelation 2 tells us that they lost their heart. They don't want to do that either. We want to be full-bodied. Not skewed in one direction or another. And just in conclusion here, maybe these are things that could be left behind, but um, what was Paul's role? These are sort of some tangential tidbits. His role was to introduce the kingdom, wasn't it, to the world? Who's his Old Testament counterpart? I think Samuel, Saul, same name, right? What was Samuel's ministry? It was to introduce the people of God to the kingdom. So you look at Samuel, you look at Saul, New Testament Paul, both separated at birth, right? The ministry of God. Both had a supernatural call, right? Samuel, Samuel, middle of the night. Saul, Saul, middle of the day. Chosen vessels. Honesty and integrity marked their ministry. Remember Samuel at the end of his life said to the people, just so you know, I never required anything of you. 
I didn't use this for bribes. His sons were, but he didn't do that. Samuel never shrunk away from Solomon's instruction and warning. Solomon, Samuel paved the way to Old Testament Saul, right? Head and shoulders over everybody else. Waste of a guy though, right? What about New Testament Saul? Well, his name somewhere along the line became Paul. You know, New Testament Saul was head and shoulders over everybody else, right? I mean, Hebrew of the Hebrews, taught by Gamaliel, all the rest of it. This was the guy that was going to take them to the next level, right? So he met the Lord on the Damascus Highway, and his name changed to Paul. You know, Saul means heard of God. Paul means humbled. Humbled. And Old Testament Saul... He did whatever the people told him to do. Justified it. Self-justification, all the rest of it. New Testament Paul, impervious to the people. He did what God told him to do. What's our role? Why do we exist? Let's say bring glory to God. Yeah, that's good. We're here, though, to introduce the kingdom. It's closer now than it was then. It's just around the corner. I mean, that was Saul's role in the Old Testament too. You think that if Saul had done everything right, that David would never have been king? No. I mean, Deuteronomy talked about coming kings. David was God's plan of a king. But the people got lazy, anxious, annoying. I don't know what word you want to use. They wanted a king now. So God gave them an interim whose role was really to introduce the people to the kingdom. What's our role? Are we going to be little Saul's running around, building our own little kingdoms here? Or are we actually going to introduce this world to a coming king? The true David, his coronation is actually just around the corner. And just as David was way back then, our king has already been anointed. The crowning day is coming as we've sung already today. May God bless us. Hey, thank you so much for listening. What a privilege it was to share God's word with you today. We pray that you were fed, strengthened, and more equipped to run the race with perseverance. To listen to more podcasts like this, make sure to subscribe. For more content from Langstaff and to connect with us, go to langstaffassembly.com. Have a blessed day and we'll see you next time.